Kia ora and hello everyone. My name is Evie O'Brien and on behalf of the Atlantic Institute, welcome to this Fellowship of Fellowship discussion, Social Media Mobilising for Change. A warm welcome to the Obama Fellows on this call, Rhodes Scholars, the Care Lab, Sarah Stevens, and our Atlantic Fellows. Special acknowledgement to our incredible esteemed speakers, Jessica and Bibi Aisha. Thank you for honouring this community today. This is the first of two Fellowship of Fellowship webinars, which will be followed by smaller sessions to drill down on the issues discussed today. Before I hand over to our moderator, Tanya Charles, it's important to acknowledge that while some of us are enjoying lifted restrictions and that very longed for reconnection in person with family, friends and colleagues, the virus is still present in almost every part of the world. It is currently hitting hardest in Asia, parts of Africa, Europe and America, where many of our fellows live and work. This is because of existing economic and social inequities and also because of vaccine inequity, caused both by a lack of access to vaccine supply and the slowness of wealthy countries to honour their dose-sharing commitments. Indeed, while this is happening, many countries are beginning booster jets. We also have those communities where vaccine hesitancy is high or where there is a high number of anti-vaxxers, often aligned to political views. As a result, it would be remiss of all of us not to remember and acknowledge that many thousands of people are continuing to suffer from the disease and still thousands dying, unnecessarily so and before their time. They are mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters. They matter and our pandemic isn't over until the world's is. This and other pressing problems in the world that existed before the pandemic, during and after, reminds us that the work of the people in this community and on this call matters, not only to respond to those problems, but to drive new solutions characterised by hope and collective wisdom. That is you. So without further ado, it's my pleasure and honour to hand over to Tanya and our amazing speakers. Noreira tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Thank you so much, Evie, for officially opening the first of our Fellowship of Fellowship gathering. It's really incredible to be joined together after many months, really thrilled to be reconnecting once again. And finally, we'd like to ignite our imagination and evoke the new, new with a K, which means sort of the knowledge that's internal to us, that's historical, our histories and her stories, all the narratives and forms of knowledge. Are invited and welcome in this space. It's now to the crux of the matter. Is social media good or bad for us? Is it that simple? Should we as fellows and scholars do more or should we do less with social media to affect the changes we want to see in the world today? Joining me are incredible women speakers who've not only used social media as a tool for mobilizing, but also criticized it. Today, we're going to begin with a reflection from Jessica Horn. Jessica Horn is a feminist activist, strategist, writer, and philanthropic consultant. With passion for body politics, futures, and encouraging activist imagination, she brings two decades of experience across Africa, South to South, and globally. Early in her career, Jessica was nominated as a Soros Reproductive Health and Rights Fellow. She has since worked as a technical lead in creating groundbreaking social change initiatives. In philanthropy, she worked to design models for the UHAI, the first African-led fund focusing on LGBTI rights, and Early Ideas for Frida, the first global fund for young feminists. In a thought leadership role, Jessica pioneered the African Women's Development Fund Futures Initiative, forecasting the future of women's rights in Africa. She also led the creation of A, a practice-based initiative to reconceptualize approaches to trauma and mental health and well-being from an African feminist perspective, as well as the co-creation of AWDF Flourish, a retreat for African feminist activists. Of course, Jessica has written widely, published in both academic and media platforms, including The Guardian. She currently serves on the board of the Fund for Global Human Rights as well as being a commissioner on Lancet Commission on Gender and Global Health. She's also a founding member of the African Feminist Forum. She's going to share a little bit about feminist movement building and its transition or not into the online space. Jessica, we welcome your thoughts and insights. Really excited to have you. 
over to you. Thank you so much, Tanya, and a beautiful day to all of you. I'm so glad that we can be here. As Evie is saying, it's a really difficult moment, and there's also been a lot of death and a lot of sadness. So I'm always glad when we're able to come together in ways that also feel like we remember that we're also here to build and we can build through this. Again, thanks so much for the invitation. It's such a complex question. What I'm going to do is speak to what is difficult about feminist organizing in online space, because I thought that that might be a more useful contribution to think about some of the structural dynamics, what's complicated about them, and then give some sense of how I've seen African feminist organizing to try and get around some of those. I think one of the things to keep in mind is that social media in particular is actually very young. Facebook came into use in 2004. It's basically a teenager. And if you look at something like TikTok, it came on in 2016. So we're talking about mediums that are relatively new. And I feel like as activists, we're actually still trying to get our heads around them because we're still learning the ins and outs. And as we do that, the mediums themselves are changing, partly through our action. So it's a moving question. What I want to present is some complications, what's difficult, what are some of the meta questions around social media and the things we need to think about when we're trying to use these spaces for activism. So I thought about a few key questions that we use in any political activism, but certainly in the tradition that I come from, which is African feminist activism, questions that we ask and applying them to the social media space. So to begin is the question of who has the power. Of course, any kind of activism is really about mapping out and analyzing and understanding how power is distributed and organized in society and how it then is used to either oppress or to liberate. Historically, of course, African feminists have been contending with our own local patriarchies (laughs) from the household to the community level, etc., but also largely in a structural way with governments, whether they be colonizing ones or the post-colonial ones that we elect or not. (laughs) What's interesting about social media is that social media is ultimately commercial real estate. So when we're engaging with it, we have to remember that social media is basically the province of a number of companies. And actually, the social media that most of the world uses is owned by about five or six companies, most of them situated in Silicon Valley. They present a difficult actor because in real terms, we actually have no authority over them, even as users. We don't really have much of a social contract. They have limited obligations around accountability, and most of their accountability is determined by themselves, by their own corporate governance, and not necessarily, again, by a citizenry, because as users, we're not really citizens in these spaces. Even as a lobbying force, if you think about it, if every single African feminist decided that they were going to boycott, that we were going to leave Twitter, leave Facebook, leave Instagram, leave TikTok, we're done. In real terms, it probably wouldn't affect the profits of these companies. So how do we enact change or assert power? In many ways, we negotiate that through subversion, finding ways to use the apps to try and mitigate what's happening, and also how much we're giving up in return for our participation in them, because they're free on the outset, but we know they're free because really they're mining our data. That's the commercial asset for them. The added layer of complexity is the fact that our governments are also trying to crack the same question. They're also trying to assert their power and authority over these social media platforms. And we've seen that across Africa. We've seen internet bans, especially around elections. We've seen obliging SIM card registration, which is one way of making people trackable. Taxes on social media use, which means that these platforms aren't actually accessible to a majority because they're too expensive. Through to even buying spyware like Pegasus, which has been used against many activists to hack their phones and track their activity and even plant evidence on them, etc. And that's some of the things we contend with in African feminist space. The second big question is who can participate? As social movements who are committed to kind of a radical democracy, we are interested in active and really widespread participation. And access is a big issue. We often speak about digital space as this tremendous democratizing potential. Everybody can participate and be part of the conversation. You can tweet your president, you can interact, you can learn things. And it's true. There's a lot. There's open culture. There's all sorts of things that are available, information that many people couldn't access before. But we have to remember that 40% of the world is actually still not online. And Africa has the lowest levels of internet access globally. So it's only 46% of African populations versus 98% in North America. We also have the most expensive internet, as you well know, if you're in the African continent. 
data is a thing, constantly going to buy airtime. And if you look from rural to urban, there's a huge divide. So only 6% of Africans in rural areas have a computer or internet access at home. And of course, all of this is gendered. On average, women are less likely to have a smartphone or a computer and then also less likely to be engaging and be able to access. The last thing on this point is language. I appreciated Evie greeting us in Maori because we have to think about language. So the internet is re-entrenched, the colonizing languages of the world. And in general, only about 500 of the 7,000 languages in the world are online. This amazing initiative run by a group of Global South Feminists Whose Knowledge does a lot of work around thinking about how we decolonize the internet, including decolonize the internet's languages. But it is an issue in terms of thinking about this question of participation. I think my final meta point is just this question of who is defining the politics of digital space? Who is defining what we do? Of course, African feminisms are ultimately a proposition about being different selves, how we relate to each other economically, politically, socially, culturally, in ways that are liberating rather than oppressive. It's important to think about that because when you think about the design of social media space, we have to ask the question, who designed it and with what imagination? In party to a lot of the critique of design that's happening at the moment, Arturo Escobar, theorist based in the States, who's actually a former teacher of mine, so I've been reading his work, who really makes the argument that design is ontological, meaning that through design, we create new ways of being. And so the values that are held by designers are transmitted through design, and they end up shaping the values of the users and the ways that we interact. So we need to remember that social media space, um, the main apps that we use, the Facebooks and what have you, were born of the imaginations of a relatively small group of white, English-speaking, American men from relatively privileged backgrounds, not totally, but obviously they became incredibly privileged, who constructed its logics based on the values that they wanted to either perpetuate or create in the world. And so it's no surprise that, again, the way that we use these apps pushes us towards more individualist, oversharing, which of course is great for data harvesting, competitive, the likes, the followers, the what have you, and initially, for the most part, not very security conscious. I think if feminist activists had designed the internet from the beginning, security would have been one of the first things we thought about because we know, of course, even from the perspective of domestic violence, we're often not safe and we don't want abusers and other people being able to track and trace our information. So we would have had something from the outset that was incorporating that let alone as activists, from thinking about how we protect some of these very intimate things that we're encouraged to share online from intelligence agents, from people who want to hurt us. A lot of what's happening now in terms of improving the features is retrofitting because activists are saying to the companies, this is not working for us, this is not working for users, retrofitting to try and make them meet better the realities that we face in terms of our security concerns. I had written this article for Africa as a country, the age of the influencer, which is a sarcastic take. I wrote it in that voice because I realized that if I wrote it in an earnest way, it probably wouldn't be listened to. And so it's a sarcastic take on this whole question of individualism. We really need to think again about what these platforms are encouraging us to or towards. This incredibly glamorized, towards extroversion, towards showing all of the things that you have and the life that you're leading, that kind of shape of the influencer, somebody who's so attractive in terms of the manifestation of our commercial desires, is problematic in activist space. Ego has always been something we've had to be very careful of in activist space. And we talk a lot about leadership and servant leadership and creating leaderful movements and all of that, partly because it's so easy for ego to take over when we're thinking about mobilization. In some respects, in social media space, as much as it actually has enabled broad participation, it's also enabled a certain kind of ego to almost be endorsed. And I think it's something we need to think a little bit about because in real terms, it means that the so-called foot soldiers are no longer interesting or we're looking at as snazzy leadership or self-appointed leaders or whoever. That we're not thinking again about how much money it takes to be able to live this influencer life and how that's inaccessible for a majority of African feminists. And so to think about those dynamics. 
I realized I've created a relatively complex picture in terms of a critique. But at the same time, for those who can access, social media has opened up participation in African feminist organizing. And it's actually intergenerational space, but we see it particularly for people who are otherwise minoritized, have, I think, been able to rally, create community and gain force. And we see that in queer activism, the whole debate around trans rights and trans solidarity. We have, of course, new actors emerging that are not just NGOs or feminist funds or donors or what have you, but also some of these activist techies, content creators, free radicals, as Jack Key, who now runs No Moon, talks about interesting things. And also we've been able to build archives to find new ways of disseminating African feminist knowledge production, which really has been relatively invisible in the world thus far. It allows for faster transnational organizing. Remember, transnational organizing has always happened. Pan-Africanism is quite a long tradition, but it enables faster transnational organizing. And of course, to close, just to say that we haven't been passive in this. African feminists have absolutely mobilized within Africa, but across the world and across the global south, to really think about what a feminist internet looks like and to really ask the question of how can we create feminist governance of the internet so that, again, these tensions that I laid out in terms of the environment thus far are addressed and we build a space that doesn't have so many compromises in its structure and to think again about that imagination. So thanks and I will hand back to Tanya. Thank you so much, Jessica. So provocative. The many tensions that you raised, the fact that social media has a different logic to traditional, if I can call it that, organizing where we're always trying to mitigate the ego of the leader. That's what resonated for me. So really appreciate your thoughts. At this juncture, it's my pleasure to introduce our second speaker, Atlantic Fellow for Health Equity South Africa, Bibi Aisha Wadbala, who is an award-winning journalist who believes in the media as an essential pillar of public health. After covering the Arab Spring Revolution in Egypt and Libya, she returned to South Africa with a strengthened resolve to be part of change in the country, to work towards social and economic equity, and to shift the direction of health journalism. She holds a master's in public health, and in her coursework, she was looking at public health and human rights, and that really influenced the trajectory of career, which she now advocates for health equity and addressing the social and structural determinants of health. She's currently the managing editor at Health E-News, a non-profit agency dedicated to social justice health journalism. Bibi Aisha has worked across television, radio, and online media, and had a brief stint, she says, in communications for an international NGO in Bangladesh. Previous roles include being a specialist science reporter at ENCA, which is a South African news station, as well as SABC, also in South Africa, as well as a Middle East correspondent at South African FM, current affairs presenter. Her work has appeared in Al Jazeera, The Guardian, British Medical Journal, and several others. And so we are really, really pleased that Bibi Aisha can join us to share about what could be considered a more mainstream medium that has a longer history than the social media platform we're talking about today, to really look at the differences between mainstream media as a change agent versus what we're seeing today on the social media platforms. So over to you, Bibi. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tanya, for the invite. And good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone. So before I start talking, I think I have to mention this caveat. When Tanya invited me to speak on this webinar, I was initially very hesitant because, to be honest, I'm not very active on social media, and I haven't been for about 10 years. Now, that wasn't always the case. I used to be the type of person who was an early adopter of new platforms, and so when Twitter launched, I was definitely one of the first people to sign up amongst the people that I knew and in the newsroom, but now I tend to shun them. And... I really am of the opinion that I am way too old for both TikTok and Snapchat. So in 2011, when the Arab Spring started, I was based in Cairo. At that time, I was very vocal on social media and very active in social media. And so as soon as the protest started, I recognized the importance of social media during that pivotal time in history. As a journalist on the ground, covering and tweeting the protests, and I used to be able to run and tweet at the same time, definitely can't do that any longer. Twitter allowed me to network professionally, and it also meant that because of people's interest in terms of what was going on and knowing that I was tweeting regularly, it allowed me to quickly gain followers. 
And a confession here, my follower count has not changed much since then, simply because I haven't been very active. So at that time, I really saw social media, my Facebook and Twitter mostly, as this very magical space. Twitter especially, which allowed people, gave them the ability to connect with anyone that one found interesting. We speak about the democracy of social media. And in some ways, I feel like there was a brief period of a utopian ideal of what social media could look like, or especially Twitter. But then returning to South Africa, I started noticing that as more people started adopting the platform, and again, Jessica spoke about ego, I felt that there was definitely an element of narcissism and self-promotion that I hadn't previously encountered on that scale. And because I myself was so viscerally uncomfortable with this, because it goes against my own values, I slowly started using it less and less. I found that people I was following, because I was uncomfortable with their self-promotion, I don't actually want to follow them. And then that eventually led to withdrawal from the platform. But then it also meant that I started to self-censor. Before, as I said, it was talking about the Arab Spring, so I came back to South Africa, we're still working at SABC, but in a different medium. I was no longer tweeting about the stories, which was quite unfortunate. And I do think in that way, that level of self-censorship was a dangerous habit because it meant that over time, I actually started doubting what I had to say and then just stopped sharing the work that I was producing, which really is about the people behind the story or the people in the story. Now, Ironically, at the same time, I was giving social media training to newsrooms at the SABC and telling journalists about the importance and the power of self-branding. So there definitely was a wry sense of dissonance that stemmed from the conflict between the personal and the professional. That said, I have used social media for work, and I still do. As contradictory as it may sound, based on what I just said, I am an ardent supporter of social media to advance journalism, but I feel that it has to be complementary to the work that mainstream media does. So speaking to the topic of the difference between communicating health-related information on social media versus mainstream platforms, the pandemic has clearly demonstrated that audiences are more likely to turn to mainstream media rather than social media for credible, accurate information. So a study done in South Africa last year, which was a nationwide study and had several thousand participants, found that 80% of the study participants relied on news for information about COVID. So I think for me as a health journalist, this underscored the importance of health journalism in the country because as a health journalist, I recognize that we are the unwanted child in many ways. Having worked at ENCA, where I was the specialist health science reporter, oftentimes I would be called away from a health story and told to go to parliament to cover a political story, which is fine, or perhaps a crime story, or even worse, sometimes a soft fluff piece, which I absolutely hated. And simply it was because they felt that that would do better on primetime TV than, say, that specific health story that I was meant to be covering. So going back to the study which found that 80% of people turn to mainstream news for health information, this is also backed up by metrics that show that audiences are more likely to share news content, be it a radio piece, a podcast, a video or an article, the majority of times it is a video or an article on social media pages rather than standalone content they've come across on social media. Now, this is also backed up by a study done by the World Health Organization, which found that during the pandemic, again, this backs up the South African study, that information-seeking motivations to use mainstream media were stronger than those to use alternative media. As a science journalist, this is incredibly pleasing since the study found that 44% of participants shared content that has scientific information in it. Now, that raises a discussion about the quality of science journalism, which I won't go into now. I know in South Africa, there are very few qualified science journalists. But also, when it comes to finding and seeking information, again, more studies have shown that in the past, there was a tendency for people to seek out health-related information on social media, but that has declined. So now, again, people are relying on mainstream media for health-related information, or perhaps others, more scientific sources or whatever. But when it comes to social media, they are less likely to use it to find and share health information 
information, but they are more likely to use it to engage directly with health professionals. And so we do see that increasingly scientists and health professionals or public health professionals use social media to communicate directly to audiences rather than using the media as a conduit. But the thing about this is that with social media, there's so much fragmentation. If you know someone who you want to follow, whether it's, again, a scientist or health professional, you're going to do that. But when it comes to knowing that you're going to get a large body of information from a single source, then, of course, a trusted news platform can provide that. So as a health journalist and having worked in health communications, I've learned that content shared on social media must be complementary to the news content produced on the primary platform. As an example, I recently joined Health E as the managing editor that was just three and a half months ago. And just a few weeks after I started, two of the other Tecano fellows for Health Equity had produced an op-ed on albinism that I wanted to publish. I then spoke to one of the reporters about producing infographics to accompany this content, but producing those infographics in multiple languages. And what we found was, interestingly, that content, the infographic shared in multiple languages, which accompanied the op-ed, had over 100 shares, which may not seem like a large number to most people, but to us that was huge because we didn't see the same for other content or standalone content. So that's one example. But over time, as we've been experimenting with this, we found that this is true for most content. So sharing a link to an article alone won't gain much traction, but producing the right type of social media content to company it will. So speaking to the team about this, I was like, we should basically see the social media content as the appetizer and the main journalistic content that's backed up by scientific information and narratives and deeper context as the main meal. I don't see this as either or. And again, social media has to be very complementary to the work that mainstream media produces. I mean about using those social media platforms in a very relevant way, because social media is also about engagement. During a recent Tecano module, a women's health activist who works in the deep rural areas of the Eastern Cape, which is the poorest province in South Africa, mentioned that the women she works with, so young girls, older women, lack access to information. And she says, you wouldn't even know that you're in South Africa because people pretty much have no access to information in some of these areas. But also, critically, what she said, and this was so poignant, was that information without engagement is meaningless, especially in journalism. And this is something I've struggled with. When I worked at ENCA, so ENCA is the most watched news in South Africa. The primetime channel had well over 3 million viewers, and then the 24-hour channel had a very invested audience. I always wondered about the audience that we're reaching simply because on the one hand, when we talk about democracy and access to content, we know that we were reaching South Africans of all backgrounds. But sometimes I wondered if you're doing a health story on TV and the story is about there's a new treatment, Bidequilin, which is going to make life easier for those on treatment. You kind of wonder about the impact and what level of engagement is it? Is it reaching people who most need to engage with that content? So this is where social media really comes into its own. And this is something that we recognize at Health E. So going forward, our strategy really is to use social media to help advance understanding of the content, but also to ensure that it reaches new audiences, especially those who are underserved and those most in need of information. You may have seen me nodding when Jessica spoke about access and language and colonization. We know that for information to be engaging and equitable, it must reach audiences in the languages they most consume. So going back to the example that I gave, that op-ed on albinism was written in English, but we produced the infographics around it in multiple languages. And I feel that's why it probably had so much traction. The other thing is that a lot of the science journalism in South Africa is in English. So the really good information, the one that draws on scientific evidence, the one that is in-depth and reported deeply, again, it's about access and ensuring equitability. 
we want to syndicate our content, Health East content, to make content available in other languages and then allow community news media to then syndicate our content. Previously, for revenue, we've syndicated to large mainstream publications, but it really is community media who needs that information most and, again, providing it in different languages. So October is Mental Health Awareness Month in South Africa and coming back to information without engagement is meaningless. The plan is, and going forward, this will be our strategy for all content, for all major content and campaigns, is to not just produce content on our platform, but to create social media campaigns around that content so that we can increase engagement. And then the toxic elements of social media. So earlier I spoke about ego and narcissism, but it's also that And again, this is backed up by studies, but we also know from what we've seen that people are more likely to share rubbish information on social media. And then that can be balanced out by people sharing links to credible, accurate information in the form of articles. So I spoke earlier about people seeking out credible information via mainstream media, but they may not always share that. So there's a bit of a trade-off here. People are more likely to share fake information on social media, but people want to consume credible information but then don't share it. But then the positive aspects of social media is that we know that social media has a terrible effect on mental health. But at the same time, people are having discussions about mental health and social media. And these are organic discussions, which allow people to then seek out information from other sources. And it's the same with sexual and reproductive health. Conversations, which may be taboo in the circles that you're in, people can then seek out that information on social media, but also find these support networks. So I feel like those conversations happen organically outside the influence of journalists. But I think the journalists certainly can play a role in almost moderating that conversation. I do just want to add that when it comes to content, so people seeking out credible content from news publications, they also turn to journalists as individuals if they trust the content that those journalists are sharing, if they feel that all the content that that specific journalist shares is verifiable and trustworthy. And going back to what I mentioned right at the beginning, that I kind of absconded from social media for almost 10 years. I think that it is time for me to return as a Tecano Fellow and to start branding myself as a health journalist and for more health journalists to do the same, to ensure that we build a loyal following, but less about ego and more about ensuring that we are part of this movement that works towards sharing credible information on social media. Thank you so much, Bibi Aisha. That was really insightful. And I think you gave us all the dimensions, the pros and cons of social media versus mainstream media. And for me, more questions around what we consider elite spaces, both on and offline, in terms of accessing the information that we need to and how both of these platforms, whether mainstream or social media, allow us to reach different audiences, depending on the messages we're trying to get through. So thank you for sharing your expertise in that realm. A couple of questions have come through, so I'll invite Jessica and Bibi Aisha to respond. The first one may be for you, Jessica. What are the best ways to act as disruptors? How do we disrupt the takeover that we're seeing in terms of this new form of celebrity activists on social media and in any other ways? In terms of how to participate and disrupt, I would say a fundamental thing we need to do, which is the fundamental beginning point of all activism, is consciousness raising. So we actually need to do more digital literacy. A lot of us don't know or don't really think about at any depth all of these implications of what we're using. We just use it. And then later on, we realize or something happens and we're like, oh my gosh, there's this problem here or this problem there. And sometimes it's too late. We've given up too much information. So I think we need to increase activist digital literacy. And there are a lot of great initiatives that have been doing that for a while now, but I think we all need to link into them a bit more and start signal boosting some of what they do. So the Association for Progressive Communications, particularly the Women's Rights Program, has been working for years on this stuff. They launched a Take Back the Tech, which is really thinking about violence against women online, including how we participate in it. So don't forward on those videos and WhatsApp images of people being abused, etc. You're part of the matrix if you do those kinds of questions. So increase digital literacy so we even know what options we have or understand what we're trying to subvert. The second is that we easily go into the big companies and use them as platforms because it's what we know and because it's the most ubiquitous, which it means it's easier to connect with other people because everybody's on it. 
What's interesting is that in tech space, there are actually a variety of different platforms available, including ones that are designed with some activist concerns in mind. For example, many of us individually, but also many African NGOs use Gmail as the back end of their email. You could, if you want to, use something like ProtonMail, which is designed with security from the beginning. At the start of the pandemic, when Zoom started to become widely used, but there was also really active trolling, particularly conversations about sexual rights, LGBT rights, feminism, etc. Activists in those communities realized Zoom wasn't necessarily a safe space and it didn't have enough features to be able to protect from that. So they actually started engaging another platform to contribute to using a new design. And it was lots of different activist networks coming together to create something that was an alternative to Zoom that had the features that people needed, both in terms of how they have meetings, but also in terms of some of the security and other concerns alongside it. So I feel it's those things. It's knowing better what we're dealing with connecting to people who are really doing a lot of thinking about this because there's some really tremendous, very forward-thinking, imaginative work going on. And then thinking of opting out sometimes, using different platforms or creating a different way. Lastly, just on the whole question of ego and what have you, we always say don't feed the trolls. So if you start getting trolled, don't respond to them, etc. But what if we also had a position of don't feed the egos? <laughs> I'm actually related to that in a different way, but also proactively decided to engage in different ways. For example, for me, Twitter is a space where really I'm an activist self. I'm about signal boosting, amazing thinking, creative work, etc. And on my Instagram is really my personal space and it's private. And I tend to not bring that into Twitter because I don't want to portray a public persona in that way. For me, Twitter is more a space of political organizing. So we can also choose to work out which different selves we want to be in different spaces. I would say some of that is generational and it's also temperamental. I think to some extent, because people who came into their own in this era find it more normal to be so unprivate. But I think that some of it is also we're not thinking about the consequences later because we're leaving a digital trace of all of ourselves. And some of those things we may at some point want to make private again and you can't. Someone's already screenshotted it or saved it somewhere and it can come back and potentially undermine you. We can also make our own choices, but also decide collectively how do we want to engage this politically? Because I actually think it's a political question that we're dealing with. Thank you so much, Jessica, for responding to that. As feminists, we say the personal is political. So separating the personal from the public persona, as you say, is also important. And this idea of how do we relate sharing the complexity of being part of the social media space, but also having to hold back. So having resonance, what you said, BB in particular, about being on the platform and then coming off and now thinking about coming back. But when you look at it from a public health point of view and the fact that access is a public health issue, and this question is for you, Bibi Aisha, if, as you said, the information is reaching people in different ways and important ways, what do we do around the issue of data costs and linguistic limitation, the issue of language? So in Africa, there's still very low internet penetration. In South Africa, we have a higher internet penetration rate than the average of the continent, but we have 25 million people or 41% of the population are on social media or use social media platforms. WhatsApp, interestingly, has 38 million users. And the reason for that is because just how cheap and effective it is. Data is incredibly expensive in South Africa. It costs more to buy one gig of data than it does to take out a month-to-month -month contract, which will give you 10 gigs of data. But most people won't be able to take out those contracts because they cannot show payslips, they can't show proof of employment, whatever is needed. So in terms of increasing access and making that information more equitable, I do feel that when it comes to a social media platform, WhatsApp can play a role. There are many informal workers or people of a lower socioeconomic background who used WhatsApp to get information about COVID simply because most service providers have these WhatsApp bundles. People were able to pay a smaller amount for a WhatsApp bundle and through that they were able to access information. So I feel in that way, WhatsApp is an extremely 
powerful platform which can be utilized to enable equity in terms of access. But then the other thing is radio. Across Africa, radio is still the most powerful medium. Even in places where people may not have TVs, people definitely will have radios. So when I spoke earlier about the women's health activist who mentioned that there are places where people still don't have information, she says perhaps some of the younger women now will have smartphones, but then again, they can't access anything because they can't afford to use the smartphone. And a few people will be sharing that phone. Whereas people will still be listening to radio. At Health E, 70% of our audience access the site through their mobile phones. So right now, we're an English medium platform. We know that we have got to produce content in other languages, and we have to make that freely available to our community media partners, and then they can then use it on their platforms and for us having a WhatsApp channel as well. So between WhatsApp and largely broadcast radio media, we feel that that's the way to advance access to information. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Aisha. WhatsApp is really something in our fellowship space that we use to communicate and to reach fellows in a more accessible way. And I think starting to think about comms through that space as well, because not everyone can get to a computer, get to email, and you miss out. There's a question here. What advice do you have for those of us working on building community within and across the Atlantic Fellows Program? for our use of social media, to organize, inform, connect networks and communities of people. Promising practices to build close community in an equitable way. So this question of can you translate movement building, connection and action from the offline space, the door-to-door sort of action, the meeting in person, can that sense of connection be felt and translated through a social media platform? Do you want to go first, Jessica? Sure. So it's a difficult question to answer because it depends on the context and people's existing culture of use. But I think the main thing to think about is what are you trying to create? And then what are the tools? So what are the platforms offering? And therefore, what is the best platform to use? If, for example, you want to be able to build something that feels like safe space where you don't have outsiders being able to come in and comment, etc., a space like Twitter is not going to be the one for you because Twitter is this open territory. So if you're going to use a mainstream platform, and like I said, there are actually a range of other platforms you could look into, but if you're going to use for arguments like a mainstream platform, you could think about a closed Facebook group, for example, if people use it, or WhatsApp groups some people use, again, because you have the power to add, etc. But WhatsApp has a limit, I think, is it 256 participants in a WhatsApp group? Telegram also has Telegram groups that people use. And again, the downside is things like people have your telephone number. So if you're in a group, you can scroll through and see who the participants are, and then they have your phone number. So there's lots of things that I think are a bit difficult. So you just need to work out what are you trying to achieve and what are some of the parameters for what you would consider to be a nourishing community. And then you just look and see what's on offer. What could you use to help create that? And what are the pros and cons of each space? And really think about it a lot from the start. And then also you have to do some education with everybody as well about what you can and can't share or how you want to use this space because that's another thing you're also dealing with independent users who may not follow your rules so if you say this is private space but people screenshot I mean we've seen that in Twitter horrible horrible amongst activists screenshotting each other's private chats and putting them on Twitter for the world to see and it could get dramatic there's so many complications but you have to sit and think it through from the beginning so that you know the choices you're making And also, again, speak with people and see what concerns them the most. You could survey the people that you're trying to build with and say, what works best for you? What are you most worried about? What would you ideally want? I feel like with that slightly more conscious, proactive approach, we can make tools work for us. If we just use them as is, as I said at the beginning, they weren't designed with us in mind. And so that just means that in actuality, they often cause problems because they're not really tools primarily for our activist use. And that's what's difficult with them. Bibi Aisha, any comments on that? Yeah, I suppose media, by its nature, journalism is quite passive and it's quite top-down. So there isn't movement building to speak of. That said, I'm quite inspired by a project carried out by the Children's Radio Foundation in conjunction with UNICEF, where 
in a rural area, they found there was very little participation with a youth radio show. They used WhatsApp to create this private group, but there was some incentive where people would receive data if they participate. And they found that by doing so, suddenly young men, and we know that women are more likely to seek healthcare, but also likely to seek access to information about health rather than men. But by doing this, they were able to increase participation by both young men and women, and they were allowed to give input on a topic before the show aired. And by doing so, I think the radio presenters themselves were able to get insights into the minds of youth that they themselves didn't quite know about, even though the show was presented by young people. Based on that, something that I'm working on at the moment is, and again, speaking about, we know that men are less likely to seek access to healthcare. We know that even now during COVID in South Africa, men have been vaccinated at a lower rate than women. So we're working on a men's health project. And because I want to create this engagement, and because for me, that sense of movement building is important, what we're doing is we're reaching out to soccer clubs, we're reaching out to other men's health groups, to structural associations and communicating directly with men there. So we do have a network of citizen journalists who are based across the country and they then creating these networks in their own communities, which then feeds into the work that we do, but also allows for engagement and input because we want to tell their stories with them and not for them or to them. So by doing so, we hope that by the time the project launches in January, we will have already created a movement around topics around men's health. Thank you so much for lifting those examples, Evie Aisha. Very powerfully shared what can happen with different mediums and different spaces with institutional backing, because I think a lot of these things need financing, need champions, need consciousness raising, need bringing together. And so all those different elements can be useful when you are in the social change space. The one question I have is this idea of narrative change, which is a focus of our work in our different fellowships and scholarships. But narrative change is built on storytelling. And many of the stories that get amplified are stories of pain, stories of suffering, and they tend to be the stories that call attention to an issue. So the Me Too movement. Are we at an age where the ends justifies the means? So if sharing those personal narratives means we put a spotlight on hidden issues like sexual violence and abuse, Do we then say ultimately that these social media spaces are liberators and actually channels for justice in the way that other avenues have not worked? Or do we have to still think carefully about the cost of sharing our personal narratives? Again, I think none of these questions are really either or, or as they say, black or white. Of course, our stories have always mattered. And again, from an African feminist perspective, our stories are so rarely heard. Being able to put them into the space and actually have that diversity of voices is really critical. And again, what is interesting about social media is it provides the opportunity for anybody to be a content creator, anybody to offer a narrative and for anybody to hear it. So in a way, that's been the interesting offering is this kind of explosion And because there's no curation, although there is to some extent in terms of what the algorithms and what have you actually do curate, but there's less curation than perhaps in other spaces. So some gatekeepers have been removed. And again, it is a space where people can voice more and therefore you're able to build momentum. That has been interesting. And also then to see what's come through and how different groups have been able to do it. Although what's interesting to me is that obviously especially if you're trying to engage the world rather than just your country, if you do it in English, you're more likely to succeed. Imagine like a whole attempt at some kind of raising awareness about things happening in Zimbabwe if you were doing it in Shona. Nobody would listen. So it's interesting that as much as we do this awareness raising, it also ends up happening in mainstream logics because otherwise it's not going to get picked up by the media, etc. Me Too was very interesting because it sort of began in the States and then spread rapidly just because women are sick and tired. Of course, there's been public voicing. There's a whole long legacy of it. And I think that's one problem about social media is that we're so bad at citation. And in a way, social media can be a little ahistoric. 
it's almost as if everything is the first time something has been done and it's just not. So the fact that we even have a conversation, a public conversation about violence against women, the fact that we have legislation and policy, the fact that we have the World Health Assembly discussing how to actually integrate approaches to prevention and response to violence against women and public health systems is because women have come out and voiced globally. And so that Me Too has happened many, many, many times in history before. But of course, this was another incarnation of it. And what was interesting about the Me Too was that it focused on perpetrators who had public profiles. It was sort of calling out the big men. But I do want to demystify that a bit to close, because if you look at it, what happened? So it was amazing that people came out and told their stories. But what happened to them? Because the end goal is not to tell your story. The end goal is to get justice, however you define it. And unfortunately, the way that our social universes work, as well as legal systems and what have you, for the most part, those things didn't result in justice, but they did result in backlash from the men. A lot of women have been slapped with defamation cases. Also, just people who've come up in solidarity in general. We've had that in Ghana with an issue with one of the art spaces there. People who came out in support of a woman who'd alleged that her partner had been a serial abuser. People came to publicly voice and they were slapped with cyber crimes legislation, which is supposed to be protecting us and defamation legislation. So I think we need to think about that a little bit. That's what I mean about just complexifying or understanding what's happening. The voicing is wonderful, but what does it result in? Our end goal is not just to speak. Our end goal is to transform power. And so we have to just pay a bit of attention to that. Thank you so much, Jessica, for that reminder that nothing is as simple as it seems at the surface and we need to think about the many dimensions. Maybe Aisha? Very briefly, I think that is such an important question. And as Jessica said, it's not an either or question. For me, as a journalist, but also having worked in health comms, the idea of using people's stories It sits uncomfortably with me in some ways, but at the same time, I do feel that there is power in it. So from a comms perspective, we know that NGOs, they feel that as a beneficiary of the program, it's almost a violation of their rights. Like they don't have a right because you're a beneficiary of the program. Therefore, you have to agree to have your story shared. And that's probably one of the reasons why I had a very short stint in comms. I just realized that wasn't for me. But in journalism, so yes, As a TV reporter, I'm not going to deny this. Of course, when there's a certain story to be told and you want tears and that happens organically, there is this internal, yes, okay, it's the power shot, it's the money shot. And I can't deny that. But I also think there's a certain power in it. And if it's a print story, having a person share their story is important. At Health E, there certainly has been impact because, again, in terms of health journalism, The goal is not just to impart information for the sake of imparting information. There are many goals. And part of that is to influence policy, is to create structural change, but also to influence behavior change. And we know that people relate to stories. Narratives are important. And so therefore, I feel that, yes, on that aspect, it is. But also sometimes you can tell a story about contraceptive stockouts at a clinic. And you can tell the story many times that perhaps something isn't done. Or you can tell a story about the lack of availability of beds. But when there's a powerful narrative about a person sharing their story and how they've been deeply impacted, that then does lead to change. Whether it's change on a superficial level or sometimes politicians may act immediately and somehow that specific person is able to seek redress and there's some sort of justice. Or perhaps, again, if we're speaking about contraceptive stockouts or somebody being turned away from a clinic and told that abortion services aren't being provided, even though they are, then there is some level of change. So I do feel that narratives are important from a journalistic yeah. perspective. Thank you both, Jessica and Vivi Aisha, for again painting the picture so clearly for us about considerations of power and of consciousness and change that narrative and storytelling does around the work we are focused on doing. So we are at the end now of this webinar. I'd like to hand over to our Associate Executive Director, Khalil Koha, to officially close and wish us on our way. Thanks, Tanya. And thanks to everyone who is here and attending. It's wonderful to do these Fellowship of Fellowship webinars. Firstly, huge thanks to Tanya, such a fantastic facilitator. Secondly, to our speakers, Bibi Aisha, Badbala, just extraordinary. And congratulations on all the work that you're doing for the people of South Africa. I'm a South African myself, and I really appreciate that. 
And to Jessica, your input was just extraordinary. It's changed the way that I've thought about a whole lot of things. So once again, thanks everyone for being here. And hopefully I'll see everyone at the next one on the 16th of November.